and we are never we're never screwing up again. Actually, we're gonna have we're gonna we're gonna do every show right the first time forever because we've never fucked up a recording so badly that we had to redo it. It's never happened in the history of our show, and everyone in this room can attest to that fact. Audio geniuses. I think it's it's like a breach of the Geneva Conventions to to have to come into this room in the heat. Twice, twice. <laughs> I had to like climb up four flights of stairs. Yeah, go to the go to the famous no no the Sharia no go zone of Bethnal Green. Mm-hmm. How much how much do you have to play in like Jizzy attacks to get here? It was harsh. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's cause, especially because it's because it's Ramadan. We have to make sure that like we have to pay zakat every time you come into Bethnal Green. <laughs> um, and they they. they they don't even accept uh, British money anymore. Of course, they they only accept Supreme branded goods because it's a very <laughs> cool jihadi group. <laughs> they don't even accept Palace. Palace is like for uh, Palace is for pussies. No, they, they accept. Want... They don't accept Palace. They accept Dome on the Rock. <laughs> oh my! God. <laughs> cut to the music. Yeah, cut, <laughs> just cut to the music now. We're done. We're done. Okay. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back. Welcome to the first time. I'm so confused. Uh, to this, the uh, only ever fully redone episode of Trash Future, the podcast about how if we do not implement fully automated luxury gay space communism, the future is and will be trash. I fucking nailed it. I miss the days when like, you would record shit audio and the general consensus would just be like, oh, it's fine. Just put it up. Who gives a shit? Uh-huh. I miss those days. You listen to like the early recordings of Trash Future, right? Listen to episodes like four or five, even before I came here. The audio is like sh- so bad. It's so shit. And it's like, wow, you really like. I was listening to it before I came on as a guest for the first time. I was like, wow, you guys really don't give a shit about how you sound. And then, um, like an angel from heaven. Yes, this is Nate. Uh, you may remember me from all the times I've put very frustrated voiceover interludes into episodes of Trash Future because they failed to record something I asked them to. But I'm actually here in the Caliphate of Tower Hamlets myself. Uh, I was I managed to dodge the Saracen guards, and I'm in the studio somehow. So uh, let's just hope we don't have audio crisis number three because that is on brand for us. <laughs> Bear in mind that the Saracen guards are pretty hungry, right? They're sleeping at the moment, but once they've eaten at 9 p.m. this evening, you guys are fucked. <laughs> and for the first time ever, definitely. Yes, I'm Jonathan Shannon, today's <laughs> guest, here of my own will. <laughs> Today and last week's guest, and earlier this week's guest, um, we we had we were we were our normal audio genius selves, uh, or I I was anyway, and uh, did a bit of an audio fuck up. So we're doing we're doing some some re-records. We're re- we we're recapturing recapturing some of the magic, and um, Jonathan is the uh, long reads editor at the Guardian. Uh, who's there editing all of those things that are not 140 characters or 280 characters, but quite a, quite a bit more. They're like big tweets. Yeah. <laughs> big tweets. Ultra, ultra tweets. <laughs> the Guardian big tweets editor. <laughs> um, and sort of what we've been noticing, there's just been this enormous, enormous coincidence. A constellation of issues has emerged around free speech. And there are a number of, I think, very interesting angles on that. And so we're going to kind of be getting into a little more of that today. Um, the first thing I kind of I kind of want to hit before before Hussein will try to shoehorn in 
uh, the reference to me being uh, what Jordan Peterson's porcelain son from last week. If you let me tell the story, once you've done the point, I'll tell the story. Because it is an important one. We're, it I seems mean, especially cruel to step on his joke like that. Yeah. <laughs> I like. I thought about it. I refined it. After the first recording fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> it's really just interesting watching him like just freak out in real time. <laughs> <laughs> we can, we can, we can, yeah, we can have a little sign. Nate, can you please edit this out? I'll put it on like neon in yeah. Arabic as well. Like, <laughs> just hit a button. <laughs> um, yeah. So free speech. Okay. Always good. We, I mean, let's leave, let's leave porcelain sun like the Utah story. Message Alex Keeley if you want to know no, no, what I'm that meant. I'm going to tell the Utah story. Okay, fuck. I'm going to tell the. I'm not. I'm going to tell. No, not the Utah story. I'm going to tell the porcelain sun story now. Right. Okay. So because because we're talking about free speech and in the initial recording, I had brought it. I'd segued it in really nicely. We were talking about most beautiful segue. We were talking about Jordan Peterson being like one of these intellectual dark web goons. Defender of free speech. A, a listener had a listener had asked me why I left Canada. Ah, ah, yeah, that's right. I'm remembering this. Okay, so right, so it's like a dream, actually. <laughs> kind of this last Friday recording. It's coming back to me in bits and pieces. It feels like we've aged like several years since yeah. then. It's it's it's, um, it's a David Lynch film because everyone loves it, but I don't understand why. Okay, so the curious, uh, so the question we were asked was why did Riley leave Canada, and your answer was. My answer was just that I went to university over here. People over here kind of found me more attractive than in Canada. And um, I got really, really used to saying flat and quid. And I didn't want the two weeks of just getting fucking sack tapped in Canada for talking weird. So the actual story is <laughs> that Riley did his BA under the tutelage of Dr. Jordan Peterson back before he became famous. And he was Jordan Peterson's star pupil. Jordan Peterson used to look at him with like really admir like with admiration, slightly like weird curvature eyes. Something that like if you were a parent, you would probably report them to like the headmaster uh -huh. or like the vice chancellor. But you know, he used to refer to Riley as like his his beautiful porcelain son, a beautiful mm. porcelain son that he never had. Yeah. Um, because he never busts. Uh, of course. And he also he doesn't buy porcelain <laughs> art. He only buys socialist realist art. Yeah. So that he can, you know, be ice-chewingly furious all the time. When you left to go to England, Jordan Peterson got really mad and he was trying to, like, lure you back. So, like, he bought all this, like, socialist art because he knew that, like, you had read Marx. And he thought that if he bought all this, like, all this Soviet art, you would come back because of your natural inquisition mm. and your thirst for learning yeah. and cleaning your room. Like an, I'm basically, I'm like, a, I'm like a, a, an albatross. I naturally mm. sense direction, but instead of magnetic north, uh, I go to magnetic left. <laughs> But you never came back. You never came back. You stayed. You did like more and more degrees. You made your room more and more messy. If Jordan Peterson saw your room right now, boy, would he freak out. Yo, he'd be like, oh my God, you must, you must have such full balls. <laughs> so like, Jordan uh, Peterson decided that he needed to travel around the world to go find Riley. Mm. And this, is, this is the reason why he wrote the book. And this is the reason why he's gone on this big international tour. But the problem is that even though he's been in London, I think he's coming back to London and he knows Riley is in London, he won't go to Bethnal Green. He won't go to Tower Hamlets because it's a no-go zone. It's a Sharia zone. Yeah. And he can't Too go... Too logical. To yeah. <laughs> so, and by principle, he won't pay the Jizzy attacks. So he's now just sitting at Trafalgar Square waiting for you to come. Oh, uh, well, he's going to wait a long time by the state of my room. <laughs> Uh, although, Sorry. although I, I actually recently, after two days of having thrown out my old toothbrush because all the bristles started going in different directions, um, 
and sort of replaced my three-in-one combination conditioner, mo- conditioner, shampoo, body wash uh, with like separate things because uh, Laura Tid on Twitter kept calling me Viley. Um, I'm, I, am, I am now beginning to get my life in order. Yeah, you're, you're, fi- you're beginning to find balance I'm, in your I've, life. For today, I moisturize. Tomorrow, I fold. And then maybe marriage. <laughs> anyway, that was the, por- that was the porcelain sun uh, riff that Hussein has transplanted into this episode. I think it's really nice. Jonathan, I'm sorry. No, I'm, you know, I think I'm stuck thinking about how good it was on Friday. <laughs> and maybe, maybe my role for the listener here... As, a, as an objective observer, <laughs> is, is to say it really was great. It was very funny, especially me. I, was, I think I was unusually hilarious, uh, and you're just going to have to take, take my word for it. Hussein and Riley were great. The whole thing was very smooth. Um, we didn't, nothing needed to be edited. I barely would have had to even touch it. Nobody yeah. didn't put their the microphone into their face when they were talking. It was it was it was it was it was, it was the the perfect lost golden episode of El Dorado. Yeah, um, but and it was cool in here. There was like a breeze. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, Everyone was, was somehow attractive. More attractive. It was very humid. Uh-huh. I, yeah. <laughs> well, one of the one one good thing about re-recording is one of the stories we were following has more details have has have emerged from it. This is like free speech story number one. Um, who all here is familiar with the academic output of a certain Mr. Niall Ferguson? Oh, I think we all have uh, found ourselves being educated on the declining story of the West as narrated by Niall Ferguson. It's like I, I, most of the academic work I read is, is columns in the Sunday Times. So <laughs> uh, Ferguson is a, is a big part of my syllabus. Oh, yeah. He is a... And Rod Little. Ferguson and Rod Little, his Sunday Times, uh, you know, stablemate. And oh. Melanie Phillips, is she in the Sunday Times too? I, th- I, th- I thought Melanie Phillips, she wrote Londonistan, right? Yeah. Accurately Her describing can't be Hamlet. confined only to the Sunday newspaper. She yeah. has to go through the week. Yeah, I think she. Yeah, I think she's like a weekly, weekly columnist mm. because you need like she's kind of like the Gatwick runway and Rod Little. It's like the Heathrow. <laughs> He, the new, the, the new, new third, runway. The, th- the, th- the third runway we're building in order to <laughs> deport more brown people. <laughs> um, you know, so Niall Ferguson uh, is a professor at Stanford of history. More or less everything he writes is actually white people have never really done anything wrong. He also uh, has a book about basically actually the West is superior. And uh, if you're in New York, you might find people with bank and or hedge fund branded vests reading it on the train going to and from various... Uh, Neighborhoods that didn't used to be full of people invests. Um, so he's oh, definitely a staple because companies buy his books and pay him to talk at their companies to educate them on the decline of the West. Well, uh, a certain a certain position held by a certain Mr. Ferguson, um, the I think he had a, I think a professorship at Stanford uh, in the states, and um, as part of that, he also ran a group called Cardinal Conversations, which is at the center of probably one of the most hilarious free speech incidents that's ever occurred in an American university. I'm not going to go fully on British university because some weird shit has happened here. Um, basically, he runs a sort of a conservative student speech group, more or less, that's a famously basically just a nexus of oppression uh, called Cardinal Conversations. Um, and what Cardinal Conversations basically does is they invite some like reactionary psychopath to come like expound their theories of race science. In this case, it was literal. They invited Charles Murray <laughs> uh, to come expound more or less a theory of IQ and race science at Stanford. And um, he found himself slightly protested. 
Now, in one of probably the greatest, um, one of just an, an ongoing sequence of right, of, um, of right-wing so-called intellectuals just relentlessly owning themselves through either like misuse of predictive algorithms or technology, a series of emails was forwarded to the wrong person. As, so, this, so this is a man who wrote, his last book was all about like technology and how you know, technology was going to change the way that like society and democracy was going to work. So he's, he wrote this book about apps and he wrote about how like technology was going to change democracy and stuff like that. And he basically, he went around like the speaker circuit, all these banks, all these like hedge funds he talks to, talking about how like, you know, he was the one who understood technology and yet he's somehow unable to say. <laughs> it's not called, it's called like the tower and the square, the circle and the tower. Yeah, something lame, something, <laughs> something lame like that. Something weirdly sexual. <laughs> so, um... <laughs> basically, here, here are here's a transcript of emails because it basically, like some people were protesting. Yeah, uh, wait, I want to pause Murray. one second. So, is this so? Is this meant to be a, an explicitly conservative thing, or is it just like, oh, this is a forum for campus debate? I think do we, there, do we know it's it's con, it's conservative in as much as it's like, well, we're gonna talk to great white men in, of history without sort of so much saying that it's like, ah, the it's it is uh, well, we'll go into the uh, into the emails and this will this will say. Okay. But his emails. <laughs> so Ferguson, Ferguson in this leaked email writes, um, the original Cardinal Conversation Steering Committee should be allies against a particular undergraduate student who is protesting them. Whatever your past differences, bury them. Unite against the SJWs. A friend of mine is a fellow at Vox Clara who is especially good and will intimidate them. Basically... Uh, Niall Ferguson is trying to muster a street gang of nerds. He did a bla- he did the blade meme. It's the it's it's the it's an actual extension on the blade meme, right? <laughs> well, well, you were protest well you were protesting Charles Murray. I studied uh, economics to a PhD level at a Christian university. <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong, but the the acolyte that he had planned to sick on these individuals didn't even have an it wasn't an econ PhD. It was an econ history PhD. But yes. that's still intimidating to the left somehow because. That must involve the uh-huh. absolutely unbiased and completely not subjective science of economics. Well, they did economics 101. Every left is weakness. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if I'm not pointed out simple science, supply and demand, I'll never be able to stop making arguments. No, on I've never thought it through, to be honest. I just keep letting my feelings rule me because I've heard, <laughs> I try to fight facts with them. <laughs> if only they would care. You know, so well, here's the great thing. Here's the great thing. Uh, one of Ferguson's protégés... Um, which is actually the son of Obama security advisor Susan Rice, which is incredible, wrote to Ferguson, quote, slowly we will continue to crush the left will to resist as they will crack under pressure. He sounds like, he sounds like a fucking, like, one of those, you know, dads who joins a drama society and then decides they want to play a Nazi. Gorka. Yeah, well, that- <laughs> I was thinking about this sort of guy who, like, brings his gun to, like, the neighborhood watch patrol. Is, is like, do we have neighborhood watch here? Is that only a thing in America? I was going to say, that's, there's a particularly American crazy dad protecting his property kind of vibe that well, you that, get from that. I mean, I that. suppose uh, that's George Zimmerman is that, yeah, is that yeah. guy. But, but this is also like George Zimmerman, but he's obsessed with the idea that there's a mole inside mm. the neighborhood watch <laughs> <laughs> who, who might be, you know, uh, wired up. <laughs> giving evidence to the FBI about abuses inside the neighborhood watch. He's just tweeting it out to the left, whoever uh-huh. that is. They're getting all the neighborhood watch minutes. No, no, no it, the worry is, is, is here's, here's the next quote actually leads me to realize what I think his re- worry really is. 
Now we turn, more, for, more Ferguson, to the more subtle game of grinding them down in the committee. The price of liberty is eternal vigilance. It's the Blade meme. <laughs> it's just another version of the fucking Blade meme. It's like, you know, oh, fuck's sake, I don't even know like how to even... It's kind of, oh, you know what? You know what? It reminds me of when I used to play Warhammer at Games Workshop, and you'd always have those guys who would like dictate every move that they would make, and they would say it in like these really weird ways, like, you know, I'm taking my like unit of space marines, I'm going to obliterate you, or something like that. I don't know, I don't know. Like they would make it more dramatic, uh-huh. obviously. It reminds me of like it reminds me of basically just, like this weird elaborate form of like eternal cosplay. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking the exact same thing, that if your entire life and your concept of struggle between opposing groups is dictated by video game dialogue, this is the way that you would write. I was going to say, it's Metal Gear Solid, and I hate making the same joke every time I'm on this show, but all I can think of is just like the PTT with Snake's face and the colonel just back and forth, and they're talking about the academic left. Niall! But then the question is, where did Ferguson pick this up? Has he been? He's never has gained. he gone so deep in with like the college Republicans? He studied that... the blade. <laughs> he studied the blade. Oh no! Because he... I think he's too old for this. But he's also he's like one of those guys who I think is going through like some sort of life crisis, and like you know, I it's it's kind of like your worst fear, but it's something that other academics have kind of told me, which is that you ha- you end up having you end up having like professors or academics who like regress so much that they end up like fraternizing with students. Well, they end up like wanting to like hang out with students and be like students again. Mm-hmm. And I guess for him, it's just like, you know, you know, that's his thing. He wants to just hang out with students. Yeah, so it's third-hand video game dialogue. No, it's, I, he I think... wants to be like a mentor, right? He wants to kind of be the guy that these like young college Republicans look up to. Uh-huh. Which and... means that he has to talk like a fucking moron to do it. Right? <laughs> well, I think what I, what, the way I kind of see it is that, is that every... Like conservative academics midlife crisis, it isn't buying a sports car. It's trying to be. It, it is trying to lead a crusade. <laughs> like in, in in the 1300s, you could go and sack Venice and say that you were doing it to own the Arabs. Um, which again, that actually happened. Um, I don't know if it was in the 1300s, but the, the a Western crusading force did once get sort of so um, ass backwards that they sacked Venice to own the Arabs. Um, and and just so Niall Ferguson is is now he is he is the same crusader. He is still trying to defend Christendom. Uh, except the thing is, he's doing it with all the gravitas of a um na- a middle aged neighborhood watch psychopath who's like brought his everyday carry of like the devil may cry guns and and a giant sword uh, to the meeting. All and, and what he's doing is then he's going around and sort of waving bacon in front of everyone's face because he's pretty sure that one of them is like a secret Muslim doing taqiyya. Like imagining him coming home to his wife and being like, honey, to protect the West, I have to leave you for Ion Hersi Ali. <laughs> <laughs> and so he tried to basically do oppo research on a 20-year-old student to protect yeah, the West. <laughs> something that I feel like hasn't come up in this whole story is what they actually turned up. Uh, like what, what this... this, this left-wing activist who I think is called Michael O'Conn, mm-hmm. who, who, who Ferguson is urging them to do oppo on, like, what did they think they were going to turn up here? <laughs> you know? Like, Holy shit, he failed Jim! No, like, yeah. Or- he smoked one and a half spliffs. I mean, that's, that's probably the only thing you come <laughs> up with. I don't understand, like, how at that age, like, what would classify as, like, opposition... Like, was he colluding with the Hillary campaign while he was in high school? Which I'm is thinking, like, yeah. I'm thinking what, like, uh, bad 
wrestling memes of a Stalinist sort? What's the like? <laughs> what are the vices of a of a like twenty year old college leftist that you're gonna? I mean, I always think they want rude, potentially vulgar tweets that they can make a way bigger deal out of than a normal person would. But like, ultimately, I agree with you that th- there's nothing you can. Horny on Maine. Exactly. Yeah. Is that yeah. what we're going for? Or, like, or maybe one day he said depression was just a mindset thing, and they're like, oh, we can kill him legally now. <laughs> I just look at it more that I think about what I was into as a college student when I was 20, and it's like, it's weird enough when you're in school and you're sort of like, do I really want to be an adult? I mean, I sort of have to. Imagine that plus. Apparently, Dr. X, your professor of history, is conspiring to like find you out somehow with a bunch of his acolytes because Dr. Colossus. <laughs> because if you imagine, imagine how you thought of professors as an undergrad. Yo, I got and a, now I, you've got one of them. The most esteemed one is like, I don't like that one. He like, tweeted something rude like, about me. Destroy yes, him. Yes, end com- him. Come to my office hours on Skull Island. <laughs> Oh, sweet. I fu- no, this is my favorite thing that's ever happened. I love when people are arch. But what now has happened, you mentioned that since our original rendition of this bit on Friday, which was so good, uh-huh. uh, more news has come out. Yeah, he... Uh, in that what he basically had to like own up to this and write yep. some... So he had to columns. Ru- yeah, but it was like one of the funniest things. It was like, and every everyone like sort of dunked on him for this because he ba- he basically uh, Riley. I think Riley's bringing it up, but his basic thing was like, yeah, what I did was wrong, but now I'm going to focus on what I'm really good at, which is writing apologia for war criminals. <laughs> <laughs> the, the article is called uh, "A Hard Lesson on Student Politics." After a pyrrhic victory for free speech, I'm going back to what I do best: trying trying to take over the world. <laughs> Huge win for the battle of ideas. <laughs> Fuck no, he's Stimpy. You know, like you know, no, not Stimpy. What were they, What's the cartoon with the two with the two mice? It's not Ren and Stimpy. It's the other one. Oh, uh, it's Pinky and the Brain. He's yeah, the brain. He's the brain. He's the brain. Yes. He's Stimpy. No, he's um, he's the brain. He's <laughs> the brain. I like, that, I like that we did it again and you still fucked it up. <laughs> Look, I only watch Evangelion. It's the only thing I watch. It's the only cartoon. That so I, like everybody knows that that Stimpy and the Brain are along the same are characters. The same, like, yeah. look, we've all read Jordan Peterson's early work where he basically just complains about cartoons, <laughs> and he says that every there are two personality types. There's the Stimpy slash Brain personality type and the Ren slash Pinky personality type. Don't you guys ever read? Haven't you ever like done logic? Like this is this is formal logic. This is what actually. happens when like you only watch um when you when you only watch uh uh Rick and Morty. <laughs> yeah, your brain, exactly. Your, your brain becomes so good that you forget everything you, you, else. You get the best brain. Uh, so, <laughs> um, Niall Ferguson uh says that um the only thing that came of the emails they didn't even do any opposition research. The only thing that came of their emails was that their circulation led to my stepping down from my post. So the big the whole. Black Ops, uh-huh. nothing. Yeah, it's what he did was he had a very careful, uh, coordinated mission to machine gun himself in the leg. <laughs> <laughs> Insert that drill tweet here. Um, so he says, from all this, I draw two conclusions. First, it might have been avoided if conservatives at universities did not feel so beleaguered. There is a debate about whether free speech has been so restricted on American campuses in recent years. I have no doubt it has. Middle-of-the-road students live in fear that a casual mark will be deemed offensive or triggering or supervillain-like, and their social media, well, I added the last bit, and their social media will be <laughs> unleashed to shame them. Conservative students have to keep quiet or fight a culture war in which they are hopelessly outnumbered. Well, a couple of things. So before I became an esteemed podcast producer, I used to teach college English, 
Um, so I know all about syllabi and potential trigger warnings and things along those lines. And I would say that for one, a lot of that is like the province of people at extremely expensive elite schools because most state institutions like students don't give a fuck. Like they just don't like it's not a thing. So the idea of the trigger warning as this like buzzword for the conservative right for the online right as like evidence of you know weakness and oppression of of conservatives on campus it's kind of horseshit. I mean, it just does, does it exist in the sense that people are going to push back against you if you're like walking around you know, carrying signs saying go Trump with a red hat on, or you're making shitty memes of yourself wearing diapers, like people are going to make fun of you. Mm -hmm. But the, I think the thing here is that they have equated the idea of disagreement or making light of someone with yeah. the idea of them being oppressed. And it's like what they're basically saying is we want a world in which no one is allowed to make fun of us. Yeah. And no one is allowed to say we're wrong ever. It should be a crime. What I think is particularly telling about that Ferguson paragraph, and this goes with something maybe we will return to later about the way that power can never be spoken of in these arguments about free speech is that what he's not mentioning in this like ominous description of how conservatives live in fear mm -hmm. is the idea that you're like millionaire tenured professor who has a column in the Sunday Times is going to threaten you privately uh -huh. in exchange for, you know, as a result of you speaking out. I mean, the, the idea that Ferguson himself is mm -hmm. abusing his power as a tenured academic to, you know, threaten some 20-year-old leftist or, or yeah. you know, suggest that we should gather opposition research against some kid doesn't even register to him. It's, to him, it's, he, he's so afraid of someone gathering, their so, gathering a people's social media uh, history on them to shame them that he's going to do the same thing, except he's going to talk like he's, do, he's building a moon laser, which, which, which is the difference. <laughs> so uh, I, for one, am excited for, um, for Niall Ferguson to take over the, the U.S. government to fly to the moon, to just drive it into, um, into America, to destroy the entire world because of this exact segment of us being mean to Mal Ferguson. But I do have one thing to add. Hussein has to answer for this as the one person in the room currently with, the, with an English accent. Because Americans, admittedly, are so weird and so insecure in their place in the world that we love English accents so much and we are willing to tolerate literal moonraker villain bullshit from someone if they speak charmingly and have those wonderful vowels like Niall Ferguson does. I don't get it, but we do. I think Apologize. <laughs> No, no, because there's a lot of power that comes with it. And this is why when I go to America later this year, I'm going to use this British accent that was kicked into me by the colonizers to convince all the Americans that coffee is in fact a soup. And that you will, you will be, will be my persecuted like Majid Nawaz. Yeah. <laughs> when, when the, what is it, like the SPLC or like some, you know, anti-hate groups put you on watch lists. I mean, like, I, I, I feel Majid's pain whenever people tweet things at me basically saying that I'm wrong or I should log off or my tweets are bad <laughs> or that coffee isn't a soup. It's that not a fucking to, soup. That to me is violence and uh, I completely understand where Majid's coming from and that's why I, this is my exclusive on Trash Feature, I will be writing to the SSPLC um, <laughs> to tell them that I too will be suing them for people saying mean things to me online. I have a, I have a quite a good quite a good cold open uh, thing that happened to the me. The cold today. middle. <laughs>
So me and uh, and uh, fr- friend slash former host of the show Charlie Palmer uh, were with some friends of mine getting getting a succulent Georgian meal in Moscow, and who should walk in but Russian Foreign Affairs Minister Sergey Lavrov, and sit at the table next to us, um, who I managed <laughs> to get a very surreptitious selfie with in the background, and he's got like a mouthful of food, and I'm pulling a sort of awkward face. Um, it's pretty tight. <laughs> Do you want to send that out to listeners of the show? Maybe include it with the, with the what, description. Like, what was his? What what kind? What did he order? What kind of plov was he eating? I don't know. So so Georgians don't don't do plov. You, you've gone Central Asian there. Sort of your Uzbeks, your Kazakh, perhaps even your Tajiks. Uh, 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 Georgian, you're talking uh, hachapuri, lots of cheesy breads, dumplings, that kind of shit. I didn't get. They were they were drinking. I a bet lot. he got a lot of them were drinking whiskey with dinner, which I thought was quite bold. It's not really a like washing down <laughs> salty food drink. Um, and I mean, uh, they kept they kept referring on, I mean, to. I uh, mean, based on ketchup, based on kachapuri, I definitely would want some whiskey with that to just cut through the sort of mountains of Greece. Maybe, yeah. But they were also doing this thing that like kind of like blokey Russian blokes do, which is there was like a table. They were all huge, but there were no like bodyguards. They were all just it was like him and his mates. The bodyguards were outside in a car, um, and they were all like referring to each other by their like patronymic, which is like sort of blokey, bit like kind of. English guys sometimes refer to each other by their surname, sort of similar kind of thing. They're like, Whoa, Sergei, see it away, mate. And they're like making each other drink. And I was like, is this, is this how politics gets decided here? <laughs> I, I guess it might be. Another normal day in Russia. Regular day. <laughs> so uh, I want to set up the, uh, ba- back, on, back on the free speech bandwagon, I'd like to s- kind of sort of set up the next segment a bit um, by asking everybody to cast their minds back to I don't know because politics moves so bewilderingly quickly. I don't know if this happened two weeks ago or a year ago. Okay. Um, to uh, Charlottesville uh, in Virginia for the Unite the Right protest there. Um, there is a fantastic article that's been recently put out on Guardian long reads or huge tweets as we've been calling them. The big um, tweet. The big tweet. The Guardian big tweet. <laughs> um, Very big tweet. About sort of the way in which the ACLU, or the American Civil Liberties Union, um, responded to the pressures created on them by this event. Because, um, and I'll, I'll read, for a, little, I'll read the, a, a passage from the article. Uh, on, t- on the 10th of August, oh, it was the 10th of August uh, last year, uh, the ACLU's Virginia chapter sued to prevent the city of Charlottesville from relocating a white nationalist rally to a safer location outside the city center. The ACLU claimed the move would violate the organizers' constitutional rights to freedom of speech in public assembly. Two days later, uh, when a white supremacist injured 19 people and killed anti-racist protester Heather Hare in a car attack during the rally, many people, including Virginia's governor, actually blamed the ACLU. One response in particular became a symbol of a larger backlash. I can't facilitate Nazis murdering people, an ACLU of Virginia board member declared in a series of viral tweets announcing his resignation. Um, so this is a piece uh, that's been in the works for a long time. Um, it's by an American writer called Alex Blaisdell, um, who was interested in the idea that this post-Charlottesville, and I think post-Trump, whatever, uh, debate meant that inside the ACLU, which is the kind of temple of American free speech, absolutism, whatever you would call it, this sort of, you know, the the staunchest defender of the First Amendment, um, that even within the ACLU, 
the kind of new, resurgent, whatever, recurring, bigger-than-ever white supremacy was sparking debates that I think everyone agrees would have been seen as kind of heretical, I don't know, even like five years ago. Um, And the piece largely narrates this fight inside the ACLU in which a lot of ACLU lawyers, especially younger lawyers and non-white lawyers and staff, I'm assuming there are people who aren't all lawyers who work there, kind of basically started to question the priorities of the organization in terms of, look, why, you know, historically part of what the ACLU, ACLU has done lots of different things and, you know, does lots of wonderful meritorious things like suing the government to release data and get information on drone strikes or detentions or whatever. The ACLU represents Edward Snowden. You know, it's, it's, it's the, you know, they're not messing around, I guess, when they say that, you know, they're the resistance, whatever, mm. however silly that phrase is. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, lawyers basically saying, uh, look, the ACLU has made a virtue of standing up for the worst cases. So, you know, this very famous incident, I remembered this on Friday, but I'll forget it today, in the 60s or the 70s, when the ACLU went to court to defend the rights of either neo-Nazis or Klansmen or both Mm -hmm. to march through Skokie, Illinois, which was a community that included, like, elderly Holocaust survivors. Um, And this, you know, in the kind of... I hate Illinois Nazis. Yeah. (laughs) Um... See, you thought that that was something that was just pulled out of thin air, but no, there actually are Illinois Nazis, apparently, and there have been since the first Blues Brothers movie. There you go. (laughs) That film checks out. Questioning priorities inside the ACLU, and the piece narrates this whole debate between the ACLU board and the executives, but essentially, I think what it does is, is to paint a picture of a moment in America which has always had, I think, a very absolutist vision of what free speech Mm -hmm. is and, and the idea that you know, when it comes to free speech, that it's always, in any circumstance, it is always the highest and most important principle that this is kind of under debate or it's being like reconsidered right now in the United States. And the, 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 the kind of parable or whatever, the microcosm of what's happening inside the ACLU reflects a kind of broader question um, about whether our priorities are a little bit out of whack. Yeah, the, the, the piece actually sort of states this explicitly. It's, I think it, it narrows this down quite well. It says, Charlottesville inflamed two of the most urgent free speech questions in the U.S. Should the law tolerate extreme forms of hate speech which seek to deny people human dignity on the basis of characteristics such as race, sex, or sexual orientation uh, or religion? And who in the U.S., given its legacies of oppression and its growing inequality, is really free to speak? Which I think raises, raises the question, is there such a thing as free speech? Is this conceptually useful? Yeah, I think, and now here I have to declaim that I'm speaking with my editor hat on because, or actually, I'm speaking without any hats on at all. <laughs> Maybe that's the more solemn point. Um, I think this is a question that has been seen as, as like a dangerous one in America, and it seems to me that the, u- the usefulness of free speech as a kind of blanket category of analysis. This kind of, you know, that essentially when we talk about free speech, what we are saying is that in any situation in which expression of any sort is being discussed or debated, 
we are asserting that its freedom is the paramount virtue mm -hmm. and that nothing else is discussable until we sort of have established that that's the case. And to me, it seems, I don't know, this is like a slightly nonsensical claim. Mm -hmm. Well, it's cause this idea that sort of there is this thing called speech and there's this thing called politics and there's this thing called power and these three things sort of exist maybe next to one another, but they're separate. You know, that, that, that there is, I can be like, oh, yes, well, I have my, fr I, it's like, 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 like Niall Ferguson and the, and, the, and the kid that he's trying to dox. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's like his claim is, oh, well, my free speech as a tenured professor at Stanford with a lot of publications and columns was being threatened by the, someone who was objecting to what I had to say. Yeah, I think that this version of the discussion maybe doesn't happen enough. I think that, you know, typically, we're very familiar now, I think, with a kind of free speech, anti-free speech, whatever kind of discussion in which uh, someone says their feelings are hurt, whether on a college campus or somewhere else, and then someone else says, well, no, it's free speech. You can't, you know, facts don't care about your feelings. Um, I've heard that. Yeah. Uh, the motto of this podcast. I was podcast. wearing a diaper, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I think this like broader question of whether there is anything philosophically or kind of logically meaningful about this category of free speech, which we insist on applying in a very political way to all sorts of very contested political statements, uh, that's not a discussion that anyone wants to have, maybe because it seems like too weird and you know postmodern or whatever. Well, I was also thinking too that that, <clears throat> that genre of discussion of free speech, absolutism, of the idea that speech is a thing that must be protected, that the, the goal is to allow the speech to take place, doesn't take into any consideration the power dynamics at work with regard to somebody exercising their right to practice hate speech is, and the observer saying, well, we let it happen, we accomplish the thing that a society is supposed mm -hmm. to do by letting it happen, isn't considering that people with less power, with less protection under the state might then become victims of something that's exacerbated by hate speech. And when, that, that, that seems like the easiest thing to parry with, like, well, it's a slippery slope, but mm -hmm. the idea that this argument being made in this purest sort of a academic form seems to me the kind of like the province of people who will not be affected by the consequences. Yeah. And that's the thing that makes it ring so hollow to me. Not that I think free speech should be abridged and not that I think that the goal should be to restrict speech because I mean, if the goal is to restrict speech, then we're kind of fucked when you think about what we do all day. Yeah. But the idea that, that there's never once a consideration of the second and third order effects of something that it's a purely academic exercise, mm -hmm. that bothers me about it. Well, it's, it's, there, it's the paradox, right? Which is, which is you can't restrict speech because it's the most important thing, but you also can't restrict speech because nothing I say means anything and doesn't have an effect, and so you can't think of it in terms of its consequences. It's completely the primary, primarily important element of society, but it's also utterly ineffectual. That's actually my lifestyle. This ACLU piece has a good little bit where an ACLU, you know, one of the things that often comes up, I think especially in America, is the notion that, you know, the cure for hate speech is more speech, or the cure for bad speech is more speech. Mm -hmm. And this very kind of marketplace of ideas uh, sort of notion, in which, again, I think you conjure the sense that bits of speech are like items on a shelf that have no bearing, on, you know, that, that, are, that are devoid of action. They're not intended to move people to, do, you know, I think like we all agree, for example, that like there, there's going to be an exception for speech that's meant to incite violence, right? Um, 
I think the Supreme Court has held that in, in various ways. Fire you know, crowded you can't theater. shout fire in a crowded theater. You can't shout coffee is a soup in public. And I think, <laughs> <laughs> Pouring coffee soup on Brendan O'Neill. <laughs> yeah, I think that the the as Nate was just saying, I think it's not so much that it's. I think the slippery slope argument in some ways works in reverse, which is to say, rather than being like, "Oh my God, it's a slippery slope," if you start regulating some speech, where will it stop? I feel like the reality is that we already regulate speech in mm. various ways, some social some legal, some political. And so the first step to having a grown-up conversation about it is to accept that mm -hmm. that's the case. Because in many ways, a voter ID law is a restriction on free speech. Um, it's, or at least it's a restriction on your ability to express yourself and have that expression be politically yeah. meaningful. Well, you I know. think one of the things, the piece, um, you know, I recommend everyone Googles and then goes and reads this Stanley Fish essay called There's No Such Thing as Free Speech and It's a Good Thing Too, uh, which you can find like PDFs of on the internet. We'll link, um, it. We'll link it in the description. Uh, it's hard to summarize, but I think one of the points... Oh man, I've totally lost my train of thought. Stanley, Stanley Fish, it's no such thing as... 12 easy sections. <laughs> yeah. 12, there were 12, 12 rules. By crustaceans. 12 rules for free speech. Um, I think one of the points that he makes man i really i just can't remember some you really are gonna have to edit this it's terribly embarrassing um i can't remember now what riley was saying well, it's like it's like oh yeah, yeah. okay yeah. sorry yeah, yeah, so yeah. one of the points that he makes is that we would never say that the government didn't have a right to regulate action or conduct but we like to imagine that there is a thing called speech or expression that like literally is not embodied in the world in any way. I mean, it's like this idea that like the whole world consists of some like 17th century pamphlets that are just kind of like <laughs> floating in the ether and speaking to one another with like no impact ever on any actual human being in the world. Um, and so once, you know, when you talk about like, you know, felon voting rights or voter ID laws or you know, the flip side of this, which is the Supreme Court holding that freedom of speech means that corporations can give as much money as they want to mm -hmm. political campaigns, that like the, 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 the attempt to draw a kind of barrier between pure speech and ideas and then like effects and consequences in the real world is destined to fail and we should grow up about it. Yeah. And I think one, one thing is the article, okay, there are a couple of things. Number one, is that I think one, one thing that sort of tends to get pointed out is that sort of fascistic free speech tends to get protected more often than, than others, whether that's freedom to actually say something or freedom to demonstrate, is because fascists at base are fucking nerds who follow the rules. Well, also, they believe in using the rules against mm -hmm. the people they're, they're opposed to. A perfect example is, uh, is, in fact, in this borough of London, in the Caliphate of Tower Hamlets, in, in 30... I think 36 or 38, you had Oswald Mosley attempting to march down Cable Street uh, with the British Union of Fascists, Cable Street being a primarily immigrant, primarily Jewish neighborhood, um, very sort of an old working class neighborhood that was sort of the Ugeno uh, or whatever. I'd lived there uh, doing weaving. And the issue is, whenever the sort of, it came to a question of the application of law, the police sided with the fascists because the fascists had meticulously obtained the proper permits. And it was only a fucking 
rock and roll badass. Say what you like about Crystal Knox, they had a permit. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, that's the thing they did. And it, and say what you and and you know the the good and it the, was a perfectly legitimate knocked. And the thing is, they had to. And the, the force that came out to resist them was a collection of immigrants and communists and trade unionists and even anarchists who were just basically saying, "We're fuck you. We're going to deny you the street. We're going to deny your right to speak here. And if the police are here with you, well, fuck them too." Well, and I think the outcome of the the sort of debate that this ACLU piece reports on is lawyers, I think, have successfully... The ACLU, I think, maintains that, look, um, you know, we're not really changing how we do things and our commitment to free speech um, remains unchanged. But I think what has happened is that this imperative that, you know, the First Amendment means that when fascists want to have a protest, we have to help them file their paperwork and argue on their behalf. I think that... the, the, the 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 assumption that that's always going to be the right thing to do is is going away it seems to me even within an organization like the ACLU i was interested in the point that you made that it seems like there's a generational divide between the old guard ACLU people who be like well we might we might not like the fact that we're going to defend Oliver North in court but we're still going to do it because that's the <laughs> way that it works versus people who are looking at this and saying i mean i i think rightly that when you see an organization of multiple white supremacist white nationalist groups joining to specifically intimidate Jewish and black organizations in the Charlottesville area, joining to specifically, you know, render a kind of service to a statue of the head of the Confederacy, that this isn't a semantic exercise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's a weird current that runs through a lot of what I want to call sort of liberal epistemology in which what Nate is saying is, is like, it's viewed as bad if you take power relations into account. Like, all mm. of, like, th that judging things situationally is seen as a betrayal of some sort of high liberal principle. And the way that you demonstrate your high liberal principles is by defending people who have loathsome views that you don't mm. agree with. It's like playing you know. a chess game where you checkmate yourself out of respect for your opponent and the rules. Yeah. I don't know. It's sort of... Free speech is a weird, it's a weird thing in this country. <laughs> um, it's like a mule with a spinning wheel. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just kind of like... You know what? I feel like it, it's sort of weird because the interactions that we have with it tend to be online, right? So, so much of like American cultural garbage tends to be like thrown into these conversations in the UK when, and the conversations in the UK are really different because like we act, we have like a legal system that, you know, there isn't, free speech isn't like constitutionalized in the same way that it is in the US. Um, there are, you know, this is a country where libel lawyers get paid a lot of money. So we have like very stringent restrictions when it comes to free speech. And it's been very strict, especially like we spoke about the whole Tommy Robinson thing on the last one of the uh, mm -hmm. one of the previous episodes. And still, if you kind of look online, the people who are like piling on are like Americans, right? Mm -hmm. They're Americans who are like applying this kind of weird, these weird kind of notions of like free speech identitarianism mm -hmm. into, you know, a fairly boring, mundane practice of British legislation. Tommy Robinson's only in jail because we don't have guns. <laughs> no, he got kidnapped by the League of Shadows. Well, I think what, and he's got to like. It's work definitely his way out. the case that every American thinks secretly 
that any country that does not have the exact same constitutional arrangements as America is effectively living under Sharia law. Mm, it's well, way. I mean, if you have in, to pay high taxes, Sharia, Sharia law. Well, I mean, to be Z fair, attacks. they're not wrong about here. <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't mind. I don't. I don't mind it because it's a very cool Sharia law. <laughs> it's very trendy and very sort of very hype beast. Uh, that's actually when you when you go on this version of Hajj. It's actually instead of camping out uh, near Mecca, you camp out outside a giant Supreme store. Fuck's sake. Um, but I, I think the, the, one of the key points here, I think, and especially this is true with the online thing, is you will never, ever find a way to make this argument based on pure process. You're always going to make yourself look stupid. So like Facebook's new guidelines are that you, can, you can't say white supremacy, but you can say white nationalism and white separatism. Right, like one of these is okay, one of them isn't, because we have to say, well, we apply the same rules to everyone, and it's based on an abstract principle that applies equally to everyone, as though we are all just sort of thrown into the world on a daily basis, sort of born again, you know, ready to try and rack up as high of a score we can, because apparently we all either live in memento world or edge of tomorrow world, because nothing ever changes, and history didn't happen. I personally live in Kevin Costner's Waterworld. Okay. <laughs> I don't. I don't really know well. I don't know. I don't know what else I can say to that other than like you know, the rules are different in the Digimon world. Where, <laughs> where... You need the talisman of free speech, <laughs> and then and you need the talisman of free speech, and then it's just War Greymon turns around and says, "Actually, Honky is a slur." Uh, I do think that. Okay, here's a question: If the, the Digimon things... were real, would Tommy Robinson be campaigning for them to be deported? That's right. It's like in the Hussein wheelhouse, right there. Oh. Oh yeah, it's a softball. That's a softball, right to you, bud. Oh shit! Mm. I think just the ones that have like Arab-sounding names, like what Gabumon, like Scaramon, or something like that. <laughs> God, why do we know so much about Digimon? I haven't watched this show in like over a two decades. I watched the movie last week. It's still good. It still holds up. <laughs> it holds up. It still holds up. Yo, um, speaking uh, speaking of Digi, um, <laughs> I also kind of wanted to. I think we've spoken about two hell of a segue. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, from Niall Ferguson, who was a, a bit too much of an oaf to be a threat to free, genuinely a threat to free speech, but who tried to be, to the um, ACLU, who are doing some serious soul-searching in the wake of Charlottesville, I think we come on for our final segment, if you still have time, Yeah. Um, to, I think, the actual clear and present danger to free speech that exists in our society, uh, which is uh, that... George Osborne's, uh, the former chancellor of the UK, basically our tr our, the guy in charge of the money, the, more or less the economy minister for the American listeners. George Osborne's London <laughs> Evening Standard sells its editorial independence to Uber, the economy to minister. Uber, Google, and others for about three million pounds. This is essentially Osborne, who is an absolute fucking ghoul, and we can get into this. Um, got sacked because, um, because the UK voted to leave the, the European Union. And he was like, well, I'll resign if we do. And then we did. And then he ate his book. And then George Osborne had to resign in shame from government to take up like seven incredibly highly paid positions at like various mutual funds and became the editor of a paper. Um, and his paper, uh, because he's a, he's a Tory, uh, promised six commercial giants, quote, money can't buy news coverage and a lucrative deal. This is, I think, the real threat to free speech. Well, okay. Basically, it's that we are, I, I, I think we're basically live, living in more and more of an age of PR, um, where I, I think now we're saying, let's say um, with, with, with Uber, 
uh, or Google or whatever, these companies that are investing in the evening, quote unquote, investing in the evening standard for sort of in return for positive coverage that's not labeled as advertisements are, are basically engaging in, you know, advertising via print journalism that is supposed to be oppositional. Like, we're not hung up on the idea that it's absolutely objective, but there is this notion that if they've already bought coverage, there's no way the coverage could be critical, even if you have something absurd like Uber's, you know, like the, rel- the, the, the revelations that Uber had, if I'm not mistaken, didn't they have like a room in one of their corporate offices that was used as like unofficially the sex room? Like they, they, were, they, were, they were literally encouraging- Uber was sex nerds? Yeah. yeah I mean, Uber, Uber when, you, when you have a lot of nerds with a lot of power and money and way too many drugs, like that kind of thing happens. Well, I think the, the coverage that we're getting, because we, um, there was, because Uber is one of the named parties in this investigation that was done by Open Democracy. Um, and when sort of Uber was getting its license challenged, just simply for failing to comply with employment regulations, um, the Evening Standard's coverage said that Uber was ruled not fit and proper, but emphasized that 40,000 jobs were at risk and 3.5 million customers were affected. So the coverage was basically spun. Yeah, and people have alleged that um, one of Osborne's many lucrative jobs is... He gets paid like 600,000 pounds to be an advisor one day a week to BlackRock, which is an investment fund, which is a major shareholder in Uber. Um, setting an example of so work I think, ethic you know, to everyone in the country. You might say that a newspaper edited by George Osborne is not likely to uh, apply real intense scrutiny to Uber no matter what. Well, it's the... but the, the what, I, th- I, yeah. I, th- I mean, uh, without... Go- I mean, I don't know... This story that we're talking about, you know, seems to be like fairly contested um, in that the Evening Standard claims, and maybe this is more damning, that like this is just a sort of business as usual thing and we are trying to like raise money Hmm. to do these sort of like sponsored campaigns. And so what we'll do is like we're going to have a campaign about how like it it was a sort of like weird like charity whitewashing like, oh, we're going to we're going to have a campaign to like urge Londoners to use less plastic mm-hmm. and like Starbucks if you give us a half million pounds we'll say that this campaign is sponsored by you mm-hmm. um you know a notable example of this can be found in the existing evening standard <laughs> in which the football coverage is sponsored by Betfair <laughs> um, and so i think they must have other versions of this i mean i to me the connection between this anyway i mean one thing that's i, I had it printed out the other day mm-hmm. there was like an amazing quote from uh, the like head of business at the Evening Standard, where he says, like, you know, the reason why we would never do this—it's in Press Gazette—is like the reason you know we would never do anything like this. The reason why we're read by nine hundred thousand Londoners is because of our reputation for trust and integrity. It's because their reputation Rather for being given away free. for free at the tube. <laughs> and they hand it to you as you go onto the tube. That's like saying like a busker plays to like crowds of five thousand people because he just stands in the tube at rush hour and everyone walks past. <laughs> yeah. I think it's a bit like sort of, you know, Theresa May being like or Sadiq Khan, like the reason why ten million people walk on London's sidewalks every day pavements yeah uh is because you know we have an unparalleled record of of quality paving 
Well, it's the reason I think why the... up to five thousand tramps sleep under copies of the Evening Standard every day. It's because of housing policies I introduced. Well, it's. <laughs> but I, I mean, I think that, like, to me, the connection between, you know, Neil Ferguson and maybe the ACLU story and this thing is that, like, we're all stuck. There, there's a way in which this, like, we have this 18th century conception of freedom of speech in which it's about, like, you know, Riley writes a pamphlet on like day one advocating for eating Irish babies and then on day two <laughs> I, I, I do be like that though. <laughs> yeah. Um on day two, Hussein writes his rival pamphlet oh, no, about how we'll busting. enslave the Irish babies under hipster Sharia law. <laughs> and then on day three is soup. I write my third pamphlet that's like a pox on both your houses. Uh, you know, whatever, oh, whatever. Convenient. You're the one who doesn't advocate yeah, for eating babies. That's it. Exactly. Now, I love babies. That's what my pamphlet <laughs> says. But, um, now, instead of writing pamphlets, well, or I just make, think it's or making like, zines. We just do tweets. There's a sort of sense in which there's a kind of like, you know, you, you want to. All of these visions imagine a kind of like analog system of, you know, paper moving slowly and government making laws and very much sort of here's one idea comes forth into the marketplace of ideas and then another idea comes and enters and they meet on equal terms and i think what we now have is this like toxic cloud of nonstop bullshit fog in which it's not like oh here's my argument like patiently meets your argument it's very much about like what crowds out other stuff, who has the like bigger megaphone. It, it's, you know, without s sounding like one of these like corny- We have more of a Hunger Games of ideas than a marketplace <laughs> of ideas. Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. So it's like, you know, I think the, the, the problem here is not that like the truth about Uber mm -hmm. is being uh, suppressed no. by George Osborne, but that, you know, it's possible to like buy a big megaphone yeah. And that this then sort of pollutes, you know, whatever, the like ocean of public discourse that everyone is pissing in. This is, why I'm, this is why I'm going to get a big megaphone <laughs> next week and I'm going to stand outside of Westminster Station shouting coffee as a soup until I get tased. <laughs> but, and I'll be there tasing you. And I'll be, I'll be, I'll be a free speech master and then I'll be invited on the well, Stefan no, Molyneux show. Whereas I think this is pretty clear. If you had a half million pounds you could give it to the Evening Standard and they would run a coffee as a soup for London oh my campaign. God. Well, Maybe the, you should crowdfund that. The, the, important, the important thing about Holy this shit, yeah. is that like these deals weren't just like, hey, give us 500,000 pounds and we'll kind of print whatever you want. It's like, no, you're going to be... It's like Uber is our clean air partner because they're doing Priuses and, 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 and we're like helping people carpool and whatever. And to be fair, they do have mad Prius. And, the, 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 and then you, you were, we're sort of all asked to be like, well, no, don't worry. We're still going to be a, sort of an oppositional research trusted source for what you think because, well, we're just not going to let that kind of color, color what we think. This idea that sort of all of these things, that, that every speech act exists independently of sort of, of, of power and money and all this and is just meaningless is complete sort of obfuscatory mystification well also let's be perfectly honest here like outside of power and money great that's a nice concept but what's the the big important detail here money a shitload of it people have a lot of it and they're able to influence speech in a way that 
we, we can't say it's unprecedented because clearly like there's been periods of time in recent history where they had more. But I feel like with regard to the norms, the sort of post-war liberal order, the idea of, of, of speech being purchased in, you know, with the imprimatur of like a famous publication to this degree, I think is making people uncomfortable. I mean, you can look at examples and we can segue to, to Milo because he'd probably comment on this better about places like Russia where there literally are no media organs that are outside of the influence of somebody with money. But here in... in yeah, I mean, I pay people to say they're friends. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, in the UK and in the United States, it basically, you, you, when you see this happening, I think that there's a concern that it's not necessarily that, that it's going to be like we're going to ban speech that's critical of the government. It's more that speech is drowned out by other speech with people with a shitload of money who can pay people who have nothing better to do to drown it out. Well, that's my concern. I also think that what's happened is that there was an idea beloved of a lot of people in the 2000s that the internet was going to kind of level the playing field for everyone and that you wouldn't, you know, that, that the likes of, it was a very sort of like nonsense, like Jeffersonian, you know, Ben Franklin at his printing press kind of nonsense that like, you know, everyone will be able to have their say now. Uh, and and wow, I, they're all sharing nudes and racism. Who would have thought? <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes at the same time. The internet is truly... <laughs> yeah. The customer is never the 21st wrong. century's kite with a key tied to it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's got the point. Like, the cust- yeah, like, customer, the customer is never wrong when it comes to kind of... When it comes to newspapers, especially, like, places like the Evening Standard, which basically are ju- is basically just, like, a bunch of paper advertising, mm-hmm. right? With, like, maybe a bit of, like, court reporting wedged in between. Sure. Um... You know, that's when the customer does really become king because, yeah, they might be able to give their shit away for free, but they still need they still need a certain amount of eyeballs, right, to make the product worthwhile. But it's that we're we're utterly passive, and it's sort of and the, the it, instead of, instead of us being able to be kind of active subjects, then it's like no, you're not anymore. Uh, there are there are people who decide what goes on, yeah, and then you can kind of between this PR and that PR, you can pick kind of which PR you go for more or less. Well, and it's interesting that the Evening Standard has managed to retain this influence in an internet age. You know, it's it's adapted very well. If there was if there was Wi-Fi on the tube, they would not have retained anything. Boom. Good point. And maybe that's why maybe that's that's the Sadiq Vesta real Sadiq Khan conspiracy that he won't put Wi-Fi on the tube. <laughs> Sadiq um, Khan and George Osborne are working together Sadiq to maintain States. the Evening Standard's readership by keeping really good well-functioning Wi-Fi off the tube. Stay Holy woke. shit. Stay woke. covered it. Yeah. He's afraid that Muslims on the tube will discover the work of Jordan Peterson. Conspiracy <laughs> to stop people sexting on the tube. <laughs> anyway, I feel that leaves, uh, that's as good a place as any to uh, leave it, lads. Lads, lads, lads. Good, good evening. Good, well, a goodbye. Lad, lads on Hajj. <laughs> well, hang on. Sorry, lads, lads didn't on, even I'm... mention my favorite news story of the week. The guy in Virginia running for Congress who admitted that he's a pedophile. Oh, no, no. Lad, lads on tour. It, it's, that's you know what it is. It's Amma on Amra. Jonathan, thank you very much for coming round for Again. time number two. Yeah, it was great. Nothing. Uh, I just want it to be known that, that I was, n- nothing I said reflected my own beliefs or... <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, you're, so you, you were doing free speech? Yeah. <laughs> Pointless, valueless, directionless free speech. Yeah. Well, he did it to own the libs. Yeah. You might have heard him say that, but he did not say that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm going to say, Jonathan, thank you very much for coming on. Uh, commodify your descent with a shirt from Lil Comrade. 
Um, and thank you to Ginseng for our theme song. Here we go. You can find it on Spotify. Follow us on at Trash Future Pod, and we will talk to you soon. Thank you.